Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Joe Lalo, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Lindsay Baroker. Today, we're going to be taking a rare dip into craft tips. Uh, we tend to focus on marketing and productivity here, particularly last week, which was all about productivity. But uh, uh, naturally, the better your book is, the better your marketing will work. So it never hurts to work on your craft a bit. So we'll be going to that uh, in greater detail. Plus, we'll be answering some questions from the listeners. But before we get into any of that, do, do, does anyone have any news or points of interest to discuss? I do, kind of, I guess. <laughs> um, so uh, one of my one of my author marketing books has is in a story bundle again. It's the uh, storybundle.com forward slash nano story bundle. So the NaNoWriMo one. And man, um, I had a lot of fun getting that book finished on time. It was based partially off the course that I just finished. And so I had it I got it done in like two weeks. Uh, it's not a very long book, but it is packed full of stuff. It's called Killer Subject Lines, How to Grab Reader's Attention and Get Your Emails Opened. And it's only in the story bundle. I'm not going to be putting it on Amazon until after the story bundle is done, um, mainly because I don't have time. <laughs> so um, anyway, so it's in that bundle along with business books by authors such as Brian Meeks, Joanna Penn, um, Dean Wesley Smith, Christine Catherine Rush, Scott King, and a whole bunch of others. It's a really large bundle. I think there's like 17 books or actually 16 books and one course that is regularly sold, regularly sold for $150. That's Dean's. Um, it's actually a course, not a book. And that one is how can you, your business survive the downturn? And, um, yeah, so go to storybundle.com forward slash nano, and you can grab my book and a whole bunch of other authors books and learn how to take your business by the horns and go with it. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, anyway, so also Nolan takes his exam on Monday. My whole life has been on pause and we've just, it's just been utter chaos here trying to keep the household um, under control while he studies. And um, so hopefully things will calm down after that. And that's pretty much it for me. All right. For myself, uh, if you were here last week, you know that I moved out to the country and I'm now on satellite internet, which uh, gives us a lovely pause. Uh, and so it's a little awkward here for recording the show, but um, I am still hoping that uh, I'm going to go get some boosters or something from Verizon and I'm hoping I'll be able to do recordings in the future off my cell phone's hotspot. Uh, being in the country also means you don't have a great cell signal. So, um, but other than that, it's amazing out here. It's like, total privacy and, and great for writing and I'm becoming like a bird watcher. I put up bird feeders all over the trees and uh, I guess I have a new hobby. I ordered a camera so I can take better pictures of them than uh, my iPhone, but I'm sure you guys don't care too much about that. Uh, I thought I, I don't really have any great writing, interesting news of my own. I, I did finally get the rough draft done of my next uh, Death Before Dragons book. I'm doing three more of those those are the urban fantasy series I launched earlier in the year before turning to epic fantasy in 2021. So small amount of progress this week. Next week, I should be just about done getting everything moved and the old household. So I'll get into a more normal schedule. But to give you some actual value here before we jump in, um, I, gotta, I just wanted to share, uh, this is from Ricardo Fayette. He sent out a newsletter this morning talking about Facebook ads. And I, I assume most of, or some of you may be on the newsletter, so you may have already seen this. But I thought it was worth pointing out because I've, I've seen a few people mention, you know, like Facebook ads are wonky right now. They're not working well right now. And 
you know, it is kind of a weird time. And I think they have been doing a lot of uh, tinkering because they're basically trying not to get in buttload of trouble again over the election stuff. So they've been really had some more filters and, and things on is kind of the gist I get trying to put a kibosh is that the word on, uh, you know, political stuff. So that may be why you're having some problems, but um, there's often authors that are like, I'm, I'm getting clicks, but no sales. Um, now I'm going to read from Ricardo's uh, email. Over the past few years, you might have read a bunch of articles or social media posts by authors claiming that Facebook ads don't work to sell books. I couldn't disagree with more with that statement, but I always read them to understand what went wrong in their case. There can be dozens of reasons why people might click on your ads, but not buy. Most of the time, it'll be a combination of several of these things. Your cover is not right. Your blurb doesn't grab the attention of the readers. The book doesn't have enough social validation, such as reviews. Your price is too high. You're not advertising to the right people, demographics, well, your Amazon page does not reflect the promise of your ad. Uh, just as my own aside there, I think that happens a lot when people are vague and they add about whether they're actually selling a book. So people click to see, oh, the ad is interesting, and then get to Amazon and they're like, oh, it's a book. I don't read books. <laughs> so that's always that's something you might have to think about if you are having this problem and, and you are one of those people that doesn't make it clear that it's a book. Ricardo goes on to say, you'll notice that all of these things are not unique to Facebook ads. They'll negatively impact the performance of any marketing you do for your book. What happens with Facebook, however, is that it magnifies these issues. And it does so because Facebook optimizes for clicks. If you run ads straight to your retailer pages, i.e. your Amazon page, which is what most authors do, you can only run traffic campaigns. That is, campaigns aimed at getting your ads the highest number of clicks. This is what we call optimizing for clicks, and in simpler words, it means the only thing Facebook will focus on is getting lots of clicks on your ads at the lowest cost. For that, Facebook will identify the people within your target audience who are most likely to click on your ad, but here's the catch. These aren't necessarily the people most likely to buy. In a nutshell, that's why if you run into any of the issues above, you'll get a lot of clicks and no sales. Uh, I just want to put that out there because I think a lot of people really focus on getting clicks. And, you know, that's why I choose to make it, as I said, clear in the ad that it's for a book because I think that's part of the confusion. Um, you know, we certainly have people on that say don't do that and they have good results. So it really just depends. If you're having great results doing what you do, keep on doing it. But if you're getting a lot of clicks and spending a lot of money but not seeing the sales on the other end, uh, that maybe you can make it clear what you're offering in the actual ad. I, I often put the price in, like especially if it's not free in Kindle Unlimited or free. Uh, that way, you just not people aren't going to even bother with it if you know it's out of their price range. So um, that's the, it for my news. I don't know if you guys want to chime in at all on that before uh, continuing on with Joe's news. Um, I'll just agree that uh, that uh, like. If your goal is to get a lot of clicks on your ad, uh, there's lots of ways to get people to click your ad that don't lead to sales. So remember that your goal for advertising is always to get sales. So, uh, yeah, just that's why we talk so much on, on so many episodes about keeping track of actual buy-through and stuff like that. that the, you, that's the actual metric that matters. The click That they can only keep track of clicks, sometimes misleading. Um, and for my news, I don't have much news. Uh, if you're watching the, the YouTube video, you'll see that I am surrounded by more stuff than usual. I'm surrounded by uh, laundry baskets full of photos from my parents' house. And I'm also, they're in front of me and piled on either side of me. I have 
scanned, cropped, and uploaded 2,000 photos in the past week. Uh, and I have got another laundry basket full. So it's going to mostly be that. <laughs> I, it, I'm the only one with the flexibility to do so. However, nobody cares about that. Uh, for my writing news, I, uh, I am going to be dedicating the first half of this month uh, to producing the short stories basically for the rest of the year for my Patreon. I say that. That's my plan. Uh, more likely, I'll only get six or seven of them done, but that's still, you know, I do them monthly, so that'll give me a, lot, a nice buffer. Uh, and then for the second half, I'm going to be preparing for NaNoWriMo because I always do NaNoWriMo. Uh, there's no reason not to. It's actually slower than my usual writing pace, so I might as well just make a make a go of it. Uh, I have not yet decided what that is going to be. Uh, I usually try to do something semi-standalone during NaNoWriMo just because it's 50,000 words is short for, for a book for me. So probably after an episode or two, you'll hear me telling you what I had decided to do chances are pretty good it's just going to be book four of the urban fantasy those are those tend short anyway and i can probably make it into a seventy-five thousand word challenge instead of fifty thousand words but that's where i am with my news not a, a tremendous amount of productivity that is in no way related to books but uh now we're going to move on to our main topic which uh is is craft tips and since this is how i've laid out the the file i guess i'll go first uh, just we're, we're going to start off with some of our favorite craft tips, and then we'll be answering questions about craft. Uh, so the first, what I've got to add in is um, my favorite way of, of setting a scene is to stop and look around. This sort of goes under the uh, the heading of I thought everybody did this, but I've encountered enough uh, up-and-coming writers who are asking for advice who had never heard of doing this. So when you're describing a moment or a new setting, try to imagine you are in the place and time and describe what you would see, feel, and smell. Uh, this will help you build atmosphere, but it'll also keep you from throwing in too many details because you're limiting yourself to what the character or another person in the scene would directly experience. Even if you don't do it explicitly, by limiting yourself in that way, it will make the, the reader feel central to the uh, to the scene, but it won't bog the scene down by telling you a thousand things uh, that aren't terribly relevant because they're, you know, we can have a lot of fun describing a scene, but if you describe the entire countryside you might lose the reader but if you describe just what's surrounding them uh then that's super useful and also i mentioned i said see hear and smell people often forget the sounds the other sensations and i think that they add an awful lot just what i know as a reader when somebody describes those aspects of a setting as well like you know it's the fall if you can smell the dry leaves and blah 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 it just pulls me a couple inches deeper into the story so don't forget the other sensations uh, also uh, you should be mindful of sentence length as a rule you don't want your sentences to be too long to be easy to parse like i've encountered a lot of people who put together structurally correct sentences that are compound clauses and like you have to keep the structure sort of suspended in your brain until you get to the end and then it sort of collapses into meaning and it can be exhausting um so long Flowery sentences are fun sometimes, and they're certainly useful for garnish. But if you're in an action scene in particular, lots of short, direct sentences feel like jabs in a boxing match. and They make things feel more urgent and frantic because the story is literally moving faster for you. You're just blazing through the sentences. So, you know, longer meandering lines are great early in a chapter, early in the book to sort of set the scene. But as your pace gets faster, I feel like your sentences should get shorter. 
and finally, um, I do this, and this is con- you know controversial. A lot of people would say that this is bad, but I like to do it. Uh, I call it the freeze frame, and that's when uh, uh, you're at a turning point in the scene or, or in the book, and things are just about to either shift from slow to panicked or go from in control to out of control or back again. And then you stop and you take a paragraph to describe in extreme detail the uh, the moment and the, the circumstances that are changing. One of my books uh, has the, the hero is trying to plant a tracking device and his plan completely falls apart and he he panics and just throws the tracking device hoping to like basically you know score a basket and i describe the entire flight and i talk about how unlikely it is that it would land where it landed and then it lands where it lands and everything picks up off again and it's a cinematic technique like you see that happen in movies and i feel like particularly if your book is particularly cinematic and my sci-fi tends to be it really fits in very well uh, however, I will say it also is a huge trap. Number one, it feels like an info dump. Even if it isn't, it feels like one. Number two, it can be launched with very cliche phrases like time seemed to slow down, which time did seem to slow down. And it's certainly a good description of the moment, but it also might hit your reader over the head like a bell. So try to be a little bit more subtle when you're doing it, but it provides a really good sudden hard contrast to action. And I really like doing it. Big important thing, though, don't do it more than once or twice a book. If you're doing it all the time, it definitely is going to irritate the reader. All right. Before I jump into sharing some of my own tips, I just wanted to remind you guys, or I didn't tell you before, but that was Ricardo Fayette. I was quoting half of his newsletter, so I better tell you guys where you can go sign up for his newsletter. It's at Reedsy, and they're free. And him and David Gogren are really the only two people whose newsletters I'm on that send out kind of helpful stuff for authors on marketing and and publishing and the ads and that sort of thing. So please go sign up for it if you want to get little tips like that uh, each Friday or whatever. All right, a couple of my tips as the internet informs me that my connection is unstable. So apologies, hopefully it's not too bad for you guys. I will try to get something better by next time we record. But my first tip, and actually I thought of this when Joe was giving us his tips uh, on description, is just to use that opportunity to show off your character's personality or even give flesh out some background on them instead of like, I, don't, I can't tell you how often I read, especially with newer, newer authors, you just, you, your character, you're in their head, they get some of their personality, especially if it's in first person, and then all of a sudden it's like, it gets to this really stilted like author describing the room, you know, in language that doesn't sound like anything that the character would use. Uh, you've got like bookcases blooming and uh, furniture getting all these action verbs and, you know, I, I've, uh, I would have given myself an example sentence to give you if I thought of this ahead of time instead of while Joe was talking. But, uh, you know, if your person is also uh, enjoying her bird feeders and that's part of one of her hobbies and her background, maybe she compares a crowd of people at the mess hall to like birds fighting at the bird feeder, which, you know, puts an image in your mind and also tells you something about them at the same time. So it's kind of a chance to do two things with your description. And even if your character is just Maybe they're a little snarky or something. If they, you know, I think I had a character that I was just editing today. There was a bonfire and like uh, dead animals were being burned because they were killed with magic and all that. And she's like a backyard barbecue gone awry. So 
put the personality in the description and then it becomes something interesting to read because your character is hopefully interesting versus something that you kind of skim over because, oh, that's just boring description stuff. All right, next one is, and we've kind of got some questions coming up or at least one, I think, on opening sentences and opening lines. But I would just be careful to try to avoid gimmicky opening lines. I see this so often. <laughs> I've been picking up a lot of samples lately trying to get into a new series. And people try, we try so hard as authors. Like, we feel it's, like, the most super important thing. And you get a lot of stuff like, it was the day I died. Or, you know, and it, it sounds, it's like requiring a suspension of disbelief in the first sentence is probably not a good idea. And you don't have to try that hard. Generally, if you just open with something that's going to create a mystery or intrigue somebody. We, as a species, we want to solve mysteries. Like if you open with the door was open, I would keep reading because I'm like, well, I want to know why is the door open? What is the significance of that? You know, you just, you don't have to try too hard. Just, you know, figure out something that kind of hooks them by creating a little bit of mystery that we naturally want to solve. All right, last tip I will share here is that you can get rid of some of your dialogue tags. You know, the dreaded Joe said, Andrea said, Joe inquired, Andrea ejaculated. <laughs> Andrea does not allowed to ejaculate on the show. Um, but, you know, you, you get to avoid some of that by just using short snippets of action to identify the speaker. Um, and you've probably seen it even if you don't do it or maybe you do it, but the action tags should be necessary anyway and move the story forward. Don't get it. Be careful not to get into like, you'll see people doing this to avoid doing he said, she said, and suddenly you're getting an entire description of how this person's making tea for a tea party that she's giving or, you know, for the officer that's uh, interrogating them, whatever. I've got a dog roaming around. I'm recording in the dining room, guys, trying to be closer to the modem. So lots of distractions, dishwashers going. <laughs> it's a great uh, professional studio setup. Uh, but yeah, so just be careful with that. But um, you can definitely use action tags or you can kind of interject the character's thought in a short sentence after the dialogue, again, to identify the speaker. But instead of just I said, he said, uh, that kind of thing. So I will let um, Andrea ejaculate on her tips for you before we go into the questions. Sounds great. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, uh Sorry, I'm I'm so brain dead. I'm still not feeling well. I mean, we we were sick all of last week. The baby's still sick, and I started feeling sick again today. So hopefully that's not going to go anywhere. Um, but my first thing here is to find creative ways to get the information across. So uh, info info dumping is a big problem. Um, but even even for experienced authors, I've seen really experienced authors doing it. Um, a doctor would never say to a colleague, "He's having a heart attack," you know that thing that happens when a heart stops. Um, his colleague would already know that. So I think that's called mm, Maiden Butler. Is that also what it's called? Maiden Butler, something like that. Anyway, so um, one of the best ways to introduce stuff the reader doesn't know is to put, uh, as you know, Bob, exactly. <laughs> um, that's what Lindsay just said. Um, one of the best ways to introduce stuff the reader doesn't know is to put in a character who doesn't know what's going on. So that, that works really well because then more experienced characters can explain what's happening. Um, another way, like in first person narrative, the first, the character will casually address the reader. And this happens in pretty much every first person book I've ever read. Um, 
they kind of explain things about themselves or about their situation. Like, like I'm a brat, I'm a sarcastic brat. I don't care if it bothers people, things like that, that we don't really think to ourselves, but that get the point across for readers. Um, and then another way, if you're not doing either of those is to share the information with a sentence here and there, um, every few paragraphs. And this can actually lead to readers being frustrated, but honestly, let them be lost because the lack of info helps keep them glued to the page. And then it's, I mean, if you give them too much information, it satisfies their curiosity and gives them no reason to continue reading. And so don't, I mean, don't worry so, so much about getting the information across. A lot of the stuff that authors will put in the beginning isn't always important or necessary. And that's going to be the more inexperienced authors. Uh, there is stuff that's going to be important that you need to put in the beginning, but you got to find a way to do it naturally without it feeling like that as you know, Bob thing. <laughs> um, okay. So next vary the char- the names you give characters, like give them different lengths, um, different endings, different starts, different nationalities, etc. And the one thing I like right here, um, Michael Crichton was a master at this because he's a master at pretty much everything. I, he's one of my, okay, love, love his books so much. Um, but like Jurassic Park. So you've got characters named Grant, uh, a character named Grant. You've got Wu, Hammond, uh, Malcolm, Sadler, Nedry, Lex, Muldoon, Tim. I mean, these are characters who, I mean, their names are so different. They don't sound the end of the same at the end. They're, they're very different names and it helps readers remember the characters and, um, if their names aren't the same. So vary the names that you're giving your characters. Um, and then also juxtapose your scenes. So having stark contrast between one to the next from one to the next. So like if it's daylight and one, have it be nighttime, um, have it be raining or sunny, you know, just jump back and forth, hot to cold inside and outside. I mean, even if it's summer in Arizona, uh, throwing something different in helps keep the setting appealing and helps keep readers interest just because it's, it, it helps you be more aware of how to describe the surroundings and just keep things different. Um, and then last start a scene or chapter with the character experiencing one emotion and have the scene or chapter end with them in a different emotion. Uh, this can help with character development too, especially if you've got that overarching, like a bitter character leading gradually through, uh, the five stages of, of grief, um, all the way to the end. And so, and that was a tip that, uh, actually Rachel Anderson, who we had on the show in the beginning of this year, she gave me or mentioned that she puts in her books, um, and it really, really keeps people reading. Um, they're, they're just, they, you know, starting out in one way. It just kind of leaves them wanting to keep reading, wanting to keep, uh, to know more. All right. We're going to swing into listener questions. These are the ones you guys submitted to our Facebook group, Six Figure Authors. Uh, so thank you. And hopefully you'll find something helpful in these. I'm going to read the first one from Rick. I know a lot of writers and authorities in the field say that a third-person POV novel should have a limited number of POVs, say three or four, all of characters who have an arc in the story. I have always liked reading and writing throwaway POVs from one-off characters who are only there to give an outside view of the action and the main characters. I do try to give a mini arc to the mini POVs, but the characters do not appear again in the book. Is limiting POVs to main characters an important thing to the novel's structure in your opinion? Um, all right, so uh, I think you're going to hear this a lot. Uh, if you when, when you get into craft, you're going to hear this sort of thing a lot, and it's every rule can be broken if you do it well. Uh, if you've read The Grapes of Wrath, and I think most of America was assigned it in high school at some point, uh, practically every alternate chapter is a cutaway to a group of characters that we'll never see again. 
the trick is every single one of those chapters is illustrating uh, an element that was relevant metaphorically to the events of the of the book or to the to the the country at the time so it's not so much necessary to have a full personal arc for every character that gets a point of view, but every person who gets a point of view, every scene, honestly, in the book should have some sort of plot or narrative role. So it should reveal something about the plot or the setting or the moment, or it should foreshadow something for the future. Or, and this is one that I think people overlook a lot. If you read Terry Pratchett, then you won't overlook this. It could just be used for a good gag or attention reliever, because that is also a part of the narrative. If like you need a moment just to, to break things up and to, and to get the reader out of a, a mental rut, you can switch over to somebody else and do it like that. I would say like in general, um, you don't want to confuse your reader, reader by throwing somebody in for like two or three scenes and then never again. So, a single scene as a throwaway or a single scene as a, as a, a, a you know, a gag or a full POV, but you go, the, the in-between is where you're going to get, you're going to get lost. Um, and I, I honestly, I don't see anything wrong with doing it. Um, it does depend on the genre you're writing in. For example, I mean, a lot of the genres I write in, they don't, they don't lend well to having more than one POV, even if it is the third person past tense books. And keep in mind, there are readers who absolutely hate POV changes. Um, my first series is epic fantasy and uh, teen epic fantasy. And I had a POV change. I just went between two different characters because it was, you know, middle grade when I first started it. Um, and my editor hated it. She was so not okay with it. And I was like, well, it's common in this genre. And this was years ago, like this was 12 years ago, back before she, you know, had been an editor for very long. Now she's, you know, she knows everything. <laughs> she knows everything guys, my editor. Um, but anyway, so some readers absolutely hate POV changes and they will avoid books that have POV changes in them. Um, but like what Joe said, if there's a rule, it can be broken. Just make sure you're doing it well and that it has a point um, because break, breaking reader expectations can result in lower downloads. Um, I'm not going to tell you you can't do it, obviously, because especially if it's something that you enjoy doing, just um, recognize that if it's not in a genre that you're, if you're putting these, these throwaway POVs or even any POV change into a genre that doesn't handle that well, that, that it could result in, in lower downloads. But again, you know, we don't write just for downloads. Actually, I do. <laughs> kind of a, I think I, I've told you guys that before. I'm kind of at the point now where I want my books to sell, dang it. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to say that every time you change the POV, especially in your first book, uh, like book one in a series, it's a possible stopping point. If, uh, you know, I've actually found that as a reader, I'm way more likely to keep going if it's just continuing on with the same character. But as a writer, I, I certainly have written, uh, you know, stories with many POVs. I usually start with fewer earlier in the series, and I wait till you actually care about the new character to start that person's POV. And, you know, I guess my question here for you would be, and I, I see this more in fantasy, so I'm, I don't know, I'm going to kind of guess maybe you're writing fantasy because I've seen a lot more of this. And I, I don't, it's not that it can't work. I do think it might, you know, you specifically mentioned that it was uh, ideally to give an outsider's kind of look at your heroes. And um, I think later in a series, that's going to be like super appreciated and really fun for the reader. I've actually 
I don't do this often. In fact, I think I may have only done it once, but I think it was like book six in my Dragon Blood series. You know the characters by then. You know the great pilot hero and the witch character are living together in their new house. And uh, book six opens with two delivery drivers, you know, with a cart because it's fantasy world, bringing a couch. And um, it, you get to hear them gossiping about the, the general and his witch. And, and so that's kind of fun to give uh, the outsider's point of view to characters that by this point the readers were really invested in because they've read five books with these characters but the scene also ends with the dragon showing up and incinerating the couch so that also is a jumping off point into the story so i would try not to make it too throwaway you know make sure you're still revealing something about the plot ideally and you know or new information uh, for the mystery of the characters uh, that would be my thought and also kind of this is like knowing your strengths are you really good at writing characters? Like, can you immediately give characters like really distinct personalities that suck people in immediately and they're intriguing? Cause honestly, I find that pretty rare as a reader when authors are really good at characters. Uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> sorry, epic fantasy. There's a lot of epic fantasy with really bland heroes out there. Um, and you're willing to read it cause you love the story and the, you know, the scale and the plot and everything. But, um, so know your strengths. Don't, create a whole bunch of characters if that's not something you're like you would say number one i'm good at characters so that because otherwise it's a place where people are gonna oh no not this again let's just get back to the story so maybe between you and your beta readers you know you can kind of figure that out or andrea's and andrea's editor might be able to help since uh, she knows everything uh, all right andrea i'll pass it to you to read the next question that's funny uh if tristy's listening to the this her ears are burning <laughs> um Okay, so Vanya asks, what are the key elements that should go into the first page or two or the first 10% if that's what Amazon shows of the look inside of every book? Such as, no info dumps, of course. Thoughts on prologues, too much setting, too much character backstory, too much world building. I've heard never start off a book with someone speaking because readers have no idea who is speaking, but I have to admit I'm guilty of this. Uh, well, I want to start with, I have no problem with starting off a book, someone speaking. I mean, you know, the narrator if it's a book written from the from the first person uh, and the, therefore the the main character is a narrator then you have to start with the someone speaking call me ishmael may as well be a line of dialogue uh and that was a pretty good book uh but yeah so controversially for some i almost always have a prologue i understand why people don't particularly like them it's kind of a a gray area of uh, of what exactly its role is but uh, in a non-series starter i almost I pretty much always have a prologue because it serves. That's the way that I establish the context within the series in relation to the last one. Uh, I give you a little moment. It's usually like a slice of life moment where we are able to catch up with which characters we're going to be looking at and what they're doing, what they've been doing in the interim. So that chapter one starts off with the actual story. Um, I, it, when it's not a series start, when it's when it's a series starter, when it's not a mid-series book, I don't always have them. But when I do, I like to use them as like a, an in medias res, just like jump forward into the action, so that the first chapter is now like a, is, is now a how do we get here to that? And again, it's a cinematic device, but I use a lot of cinematic devices in my writing. It's just a way to sort of again, if you're trying to capture the interest of a, of a reader, if you give them a crazy hectic moment, uh, and then slap them into a uh, uh the, the setting description after that it it it's pulp fiction pulp fiction uh, you can start pulp fiction at any point in the movie and 
it won't give you any better context than any other point in the movie. The movie is so chopped up. And as a result, your brain is constantly working. And again, as Lindsay said, mysteries keep people involved. So I, I, that's what I use my, my prologue and starts for now. What do you, what should you put? What's a good opening? Uh, you, I, you need to quickly introduce a character and a setting. Uh, that's what I like to do with, with the first few pages, give a character setting action, uh, and then sort of introduce setting through further actions. If you don't want to fully define anything in the story and like I should say, you don't want to fully define anything in the story in the opening lines, because again, it should be a mystery that draws you further in, but you need to give enough personality, enough texture so that people kind of want to hurry forward and find out exactly how we got here. So that's what you should do. Establish very quickly. If it's a kind of book, the reader's going to want. I like that. Um, so a lot of my advice, I mean, I, throughout this whole episode, basically, is it just depends on what genre you write. So, for example, prologues are very common in epic fantasy and pretty much any genre that lends well to a longer book. So Michael Crichton, I mentioned him earlier because he's like cool. Um, he used prologues frequently. Um, as to what should be in the first percent, first 10% or the first few pages, establish anything that a reader would need to know to feel more grounded in the story. So the setting, what the character looks like, their gender, species, if there's magic in the world, that sort of thing. Um, and then also the tone should fit the book you're writing. So if you start off one way, make sure it stays that way throughout. You don't want to start off really dark and moody and then have it be a lighthearted romance, right? Um, so just, yeah, just have it set precedence or whatever. All right. I think it is good to think of the sample in this digital world where um, people are often downloading that and using that to decide if they're going to buy because they have to be sold by the time they get to the end of the 10% or five, you know, 10 pages, whatever it ends up being. Uh, so, you know, know your genre. If it's a romance, I often, as a reader of like sci-fi romance and fantasy romance, I often will not buy the book if I haven't gotten the other character at the end of the sample. But meaning the, uh, if it's uh, from the woman's point of view, I kind of want to meet the guy and see, like, am I going to be into this relationship? And it's hard sometimes depending on how your story is set up. You may have to try to do uh, his point of view and her point of view, and they don't necessarily come together at first. But um Honestly, now, if I was going to write one, knowing what I know now, I'd probably just make sure I have those, design the story so that we, we can get the conflict and the characters together, or not together, but, you know, introduce them both and the promise of a romance uh, right there at the beginning. Because um, that's, we need, whatever we downloaded the sample for, we need the promise to be in that sample uh, to go ahead and buy the book. Um, thoughts on prologues. I guess I'm polar opposite of Joe on this, but hey, you get both of our opinions. I, I find that authors tend to, use prologues not joe of course but some authors because their opening chapter is kind of boring and not much happens uh they 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 know that their first chapter is the farm boy in the woods and it's going to take a while before the horde of orcs shows up and the story you know starts getting interesting so they're like well we better have a prologue that shows how awesome this world is and this conflict and stuff that's going to be going on so but that's not what people are reading for. They want to read for your main characters, not some throwaway characters from 500 years ago that sets the stage. And again, thinking of the sample, just say you have a reader that they just don't read prologues. It's somebody like me who skips that and just goes to chapter one because uh, I know I want to read the main characters. Um, you could end up in a situation where your prologue was most of the sample and there's not very much for them to uh, get to in that 
you know, before they have to decide if they're going to buy. So my suggestion is just to make the first chapter awesome <laughs> so that you don't feel compelled to do a prologue because, Another thing is that people don't care about the world building, really, at that point. Once they know your character and hero and they're invested in them and their world, at that point, they might be interested in what happened 500 years ago or what the bad guys are doing in the castle of evil. Um, but, you know, you can really, if once you get them into the main character, I think that should be the priority. Um, she had a lot of questions here. So uh, the next thing is, that, you know, just trying to get that mystery in the first pages is what's going to draw people in. Um, as an example, I mentioned my general hero from the, uh, he starts out as a colonel uh, in the Dragon Blade series. Book one starts out with him reporting to his superior officer and getting dressed down. And you get to see his sarcasm, his flippancy, a lot of his character, but you're also wondering, why is this guy in trouble? I'm going to have to keep reading. You know, he's such a fine gentleman with a, you know, wit. Why is he in trouble? So you keep reading. Uh, my Urban Fantasy, the first book, starts with my heroine, Val, climbing down a cliff over the ocean and you know it takes a little bit before you figure out why but that's the mystery like why is this character climbing down a cliff you know and it doesn't start with anything hokey like this is the day i almost was going to die battling a warven in a, in a cave in the ocean it's just a little bit of a mystery a little bit weird you want to know the answer so you hopefully you read on um the last thing i wanted to make comment on the thing about dialogue because uh i often put dialogue really early on probably on page one if I can, not usually on line one, like the opening sentence. That's usually the advice is it's a little jarring to open with dialogue, but dialogue is one of my strengths, dialogue and characters. And so I want to put that up front on page one. I, I didn't always know this as an author, so they not all my books start that way, but knowing it now, it's something like, yeah, if I, if I can, I want them to be talking right off because banter and stuff is the thing I do much better than like writing description or world building or, you know, other stuff that writers are supposed to be good at. So whatever you're good at is what you should put right up front on page one. Uh, like Andrea was saying, you want to kind of give a flavor of what the story is about. So if a uh, snarky banter is your thing, throw that on the first opening page so that right away I know, oh, I'm a reader of snarky banter. This book is for me. And on the flip side, if people don't like snarky banter, they're like, eh, pass. And then they didn't waste their time and they don't have any feelings of resentment for you. But, uh, you know, if you were somebody that actually is not great at dialogue, but you're super good at writing fight scenes, uh, maybe you're going to open with, you know, the characters having a fight in a bar. Uh, don't get anything, don't get into anything too confusing with a lot of characters because it takes a while for the reader to form the picture in their mind when they're just using words. It's not like a movie, right, where you can see the whole scene and you understand what's going on right away. I, I try to keep it to two characters in the beginning rather than like, uh, I've used this example before, but uh, spaceship, uh, Starfleet, people, military sci-fi, we're horrible about starting with like the battle is beginning and the aliens are attacking and we're on the bridge of the spaceship captain and like eight officers and you just as a reader you get so many names thrown at you at once you have it's really hard to get a feel for what's going on so keep the opening simple to one or two characters if you can um yeah i think that's uh my only thoughts on that so i will pass it back to joe all right um so the next question is from steven and the, the question is what are the best resources you found for writing fantasy and uh 
reading fantasy has been the best resource that I've had. Uh, I didn't read any specific craft and writing uh, advice until fairly late in the writing of my first three books. Most of my education was reverse engineering stuff that I liked. Uh, I immersed myself in stuff that I enjoyed. And when I saw something that I really liked, I asked myself why they did it and why I liked it. And uh, I was lucky enough that in high school, I was in uh, honors English and honors English also sort of ruined the reading for me for like five years because it, it was like, here's the structure of a book and here's why decisions are made. Uh, and I, it, immediately books stopped being a cohesive thing and started being a bunch of individual elements that were stuck together. Uh, and it made me think very critically about the books that I was reading, which made them less enjoyable for a while, but made me, it built up my toolkit of all the individual elements that I really liked. And then I just sort of kept them in my back pocket and I would pull them out and like, okay, well, we'll use this kind of character in inter interaction. So read stuff that you like and figure out why you like it and why it was good. Um, yeah, that, yeah. And then I would tag onto that also watching fantasy movies. Um, and then like documentaries about countries and locations, species, animals, languages, religions, history, um, anything like that can enrich a fantasy or any other novel, honestly. Um, just going to say that, um, that's all I have to add right now. Okay. Lindsay, your turn. Right. And I was just going to recommend, and somebody else in the comments recommended this and we've mentioned him before too, but Brandon Sanderson has one of his entire uh, college university class on like how to write fantasy uh, yeah, on YouTube. So definitely go check, look him up on there and he's got a huge channel too, just as an author, you might find out some of the other stuff interesting, but he really goes through, it's sort of like a week by week because it, it is, it's a class, uh, you know, plotting characters, short stories, longer stuff. Uh, so that's a good resource that's out there now. For myself, I'm not a learn from a book kind of person. I'm very tactile. So I was always uh, somebody that like, I could do the, learn the piano by playing the piano, not by <laughs> being told how to play the piano. So uh, I found writing workshops really helpful for learning kind of the basic stuff. And I actually joined uh, the fantasy and science fiction online writing workshop back in the day, and they still exist. I think I mentioned them last week too. So obviously they should be sending me a kickback for anybody I refer to them. <laughs> so, um, but you know, so it was, since it was all fantasy and sci-fi and I think horror too was in there, you were reading other people's works and they were critiquing yours and you were critiquing theirs. And I found that a super useful learning experience that really uh, worked for my personality and my learning style. So that's a thought too. A genre specific one would definitely be ideal if you're trying to get, you know, learn about a specific genre and you don't want advice from the romance writers when you're writing your epic fantasy, <laughs> which you will get people that are like, maybe this would be better if you just added a little romance. You could use that. So um, I think I veered off there. I think I will go ahead and ask the next listener question. This is from Jane. Any advice on making readers slow down and get the most out of your books, thus making them more memorable? I think this is one that uh, depends a lot on genre. Uh, if you're reading, if you're doing suspense and thrillers and like that, uh, I've found this from being a reader of them. I don't write those, but being a reader of them, if you really ratchet the, the tension up to an unmanageable degree, it, causes people to sort of treat it like a hot tub where they have to very like just moments like they have to sort of nibble at it and then back off to get some relief so if you really really crank up uh, the intensity of your book it can lead to a reader slowing down or it can lead to them being incredibly invested and moving very quickly which isn't a bad thing um 
in general, though, I like to plant little seeds and misdirections. Things that seem to foreshadow one thing, but then later on actually turn out to have foreshadowed something else. Uh, I try to make them memorable or I'll even outright refer back to them in dialogue. So the reader will be like, no way, and go back and reread. Uh, and if you really want your book to people to get the most value out of your book, the kind of book that you read more than once is one where you've laid the groundwork so effectively that there's clues throughout that lead to where you conclude. And I've, I've read books over again. I've watched movies over again when I realized how well they were foreshadowing and yet I didn't catch on. So just, you have to dig in the intrigue and you have to avoid being predictable. And if you pull them off correctly, people are not only going to enjoy the book and stop and think about your book and refer back to scenes, they might actually re read it over and over again. So that's how I would say. And actually, I don't know if you guys watched Home Alone recently. I hadn't watched Home Alone since I was a kid. We just barely watched with our kids this last weekend. And they did a really good job of putting little tiny hints all the way throughout the whole movie about what would happen, like all sorts of foreshadowing and every, there's nothing that was not explained. So just really, really good one to watch if you want to get an idea for those, those little seeds, misdirections, things like that, um, foreshadowing. Um, and, and I'm going to say this is probably another thing that might be genre related. Um, I don't know. So some readers just, they savor books. They, they take their time reading. They, you know, they're, they're attracted to certain genres that, that just lend well to um, like reading and savoring, slowing down. And some readers devour books and you can't, get them to slow down regardless of what you want to do, um, want them to do. So I don't know. I would say, um, I don't know, like this is kind of, this is a hard question to answer. So I would suggest maybe picking a genre that people aren't likely to read quickly. Just, just because some readers, they don't want to savor. They don't want, they just want it. They just want to devour. They want to pull it in. And so like, um, that's kind of the way I am. I don't usually read books that need to be, to be, that are, need to be savored. Honestly, I like books that are fast paced and, um, that are just, you know, I don't know. That's, and that's kind of the way I write too, like fast paced thriller-esque type fantasies. Uh, I want people to tear through them and have to read them again, see if they caught everything. And I don't care if they're memorable, if, as long as the person is continuing the series and enjoying them enough to spread the word. Um, I don't know, maybe that is memorable though. I don't know. I struggled with this one. <laughs> okay. Lindsay. All right. Well, I thought about this a little bit because I just had my last book in my uh, sci-fi series come out. And I remember several readers said, I read it really fast, right away as soon as it came out. You know, and I'm like, it's 154,000 words. I <laughs> you read it in one night. And then they're like, yeah, and now I'm going back and rereading it so I can make sure and get everything. So part of it is just kind of creating characters and stories that people really care about. And that's easier said than done. I mean, the simple answer to make people slow down is to have more white space. I mean, actually that speeds them up, but it makes them less likely to miss something. When uh, you've got blocks, the kind of wall of text, big blocks, paragraphs, people are going to kind of tend to skim that and more likely to miss that. Like the boring description we were talking about that none of you are now ever going to write again. Instead, your description is going to be super interesting because it's giving insight into the character that we, uh, we want to hear from. Um, another thing is to use more dialogue, if it's possible, obviously, if your character's alone. Although even then, they I don't know, I mutter to myself. I especially curse a lot, I've noticed, uh, when I'm alone. Um, but dialogue, we when people talk, we're more likely to listen. It 
it's easier to skim those kind of paragraph blocks in the narrative and we latch on to dialogue because we think it's, oh, this is going to be the important stuff. So that's a thought. If you're kind of find yourself describing a lot of like the last day, you know, it's like, can you have another character so that they, you know, you don't want the, as you know, Bob dialogue either, but uh, just dialogue in general. Um, but what is going to make it more memorable is the same thing that makes you remember things. And that is if there is a, an emotional experience linked with the, you know, conveying of information. Um, so if your reader is identifying with your characters and your characters are experiencing pain, sadness, they're losing characters, or they're, they're having triumph, they're having, a, a, you know, the romance, or they're finally getting close to beating the villain or beating the villain. Um, that's what's going to make your readers remember your stuff, because anything that causes an emotional response in us is more likely to us to remember. I mean, you've probably had the experience where something bad happened and you never forgot that because you had this horrible feeling of like shame and it's like it's a really strong feeling and i'm not saying you should necessarily shame your characters but um it is sometimes why it's really effective to maybe lose a character over the course of the series that everybody loves it's like it's hard to do that to the reader but at the same time it just makes it much more emotionally it resonates we you know we feel that and it just it's going to make you remember that series i still remember like i've forgotten a lot of the series i read as a kid but some of the ones where like a character you cared about died it's like that sticks in your head and you're like oh because you had this strong you know strong feeling about that as a reader because you really like that character so not saying you have to kill off your characters to make them uh, feel things emotionally but whatever you can do to um elicit emotion in the readers is going to make them more likely to remember your story and, and maybe you know the more they enjoy it if they're going to want to go back and re, re you know read it again because they really enjoyed it so and, and that's all easier said than done so i completely understand that so uh you know your, your beta readers can kind of help you too if they're like this character's flat i'm not connecting with this character all those kind of things are going to be signs that people are just going to be skimming and not really having any sort of emotional experience all right i'll pass it back to you andrea so listeners just listen to her answer you can totally skip over my answer <laughs> um okay so antonia asks how many words or pages do you allot to introducing the character setting etc with stuff going on not just an info dump before the inciting incident uh this is wildly variable for me uh, i've had books where the story begins with the character recovering from the inciting incident and you, you spend the next few chapters learning what it was uh generally i i like to have the inciting incident no like the end of the first chapter is probably the most common place for me to have the inciting incident like literally you will usually I have a weird tendency to have the inciting incident happen between chapters. Like you see the beginning of it and then you see the result of it. And again, I like sort of uncovering a previous event uh, as much as I like uh, an ongoing event, but I don't like more than one third of the book going by without it happening. Uh, like the inciting incident moves you from act one to act two, generally speaking. So, you know, if you're doing a three act structure, you break your book into three parts. If you haven't had an inciting incident within the first one third, then you've got a pacing problem, I think. And I agree with that, though I do. I, my my rule of thumb is usually within the first quarter of the book, if not the first like ten to twenty percent. Um, like I like to have the inciting incident be be, be 
in the sample that people read just because that's, I don't know, everything before that it's, you got a normal and you established normal and then the inciting incident breaks normal and everything once the, it, that's once everything falls apart, that's when books usually get really interesting to me. Um, and I've honestly, I've never thought much about how much time I'm allotting to introducing everything. So, um, I don't know, like I'd like to get it. To, uh, I like to have it happen really, really quickly just because it's kind of, the stories are kind of boring for me to write and I don't read books well that don't have the inciting incident happen quickly. So again, this is going to be based on like who you're targeting your books to and, um, what other authors are doing. So basically what readers are expecting. Yeah, I'm also kind of intuitive with this. I Like I said earlier, I like to open with a little bit of a mystery, something that draws you in, something that's not super high octane. So you get a few pages to kind of, uh, you know, decide if you like the character and you actually care and you want to see why the character's climbing down the cliff uh, to the cave. But, it, you know, so that opening mystery intrigue can kind of pull in the reader without immediately throwing them into something before they've decided if they care about the character. Because um, that is something, if you, like, you start with that epic battle, the aliens are attacking and all that, and, be, you know, the reader doesn't care yet. It, it's just, it can be more off-putting than interesting. But I often, yeah, I would say also by the end of the first chapter, it's maybe not the only thing that's going to happen plot-wise. There may be, like, some bigger uh, thing that we find out along the way that would probably be more qualified uh, input in quotations the inciting incident but there's usually something at the by the end of the first chapter they're off on the mission or um you know you've been the the general i had talked about opening with the colonel he was back then uh you know he's being punished and he's sent off to like be the commander of this penal mine and you're like oh that can't be anything good so that's his thing and then uh, we get the female POV character that one's kind of a romance uh, and her thing too but so I would, I've definitely, by the first end of the first chapter, you need something there as a hook, you know, whether it is what you're going to define as the inciting incident, uh, it just, it needs to be something that if it's not that, then it's a, a conflict that, you know, and, or mystery that we want to see resolved and is going to keep us reading on. Go ahead. Joe is up next with Meg's question. Yep. Uh, Meg says, I would love any recommendations for craft upskilling resources, books, courses, etc." that have been helpful to, for any of you. And, uh, again, I have not been super formal in my education when it comes to writing. Uh, Stephen King's on writing was helpful, even though I don't think I follow any of its lessons, uh, just sort of useful understanding the way one person writes a book because it teaches you what to think about in terms of how you want to write a book, even if you don't like any of the advice it's given. I do follow some of the stuff he says, but a lot of them, no. Uh, also, uh, weirdly, pick up a book on screenwriting, even if you're not planning to write a screenplay. Uh, I read a really goofy one called Writing Movies for Fun and Profit. Uh, it's written by, I think, Tom Lennon. And he, the, the definitive book for screenwriting is called Screenplay. And it's written by Sid Field. But Screenwriting is super duper useful because screenwriters have to be very economical. They only have 90 minutes on average, which works out to about 90 pages. And most of those pages have got to be dialogue. Uh, so they really, really focus on reader attention, or reader attention, viewer attention. Uh, they focus on pacing and they focus on structure. Everything is done very efficiently in a screenplay. So uh, especially if you're the kind of person who's wondering what, when you should introduce plot points and, and how much you should 
drip feed information. You're going to get very educate, uh, very efficient education on that if you read about screenplays. Hello, I guess I will go next because a little boop sounded and Andrea disappeared from the call. Um, okay, so for my answer to Meg's question, so upskilling, I'm going to kind of read that as you you've got some basic stuff and you're feeling pretty confident but you'd like to continue learning as an author so my answer for that is going to be um if you have favorite authors out there that you just love the way they write they they really suck you in you know you want to be like them when you grow up or you know no matter what age you are now right um i would go go out there on um podcasts on youtube on the, on the web and see if you can find interviews they've done any advice they've given uh, i used to love it when um like you get a special edition or an omnibus or something of a series that's been out for a while and the author would write a foreword and you kind of get some insight into their thoughts like I, I there's a whole book of essays by like Ur ursula Le Guin, and, and you know just you can just kind of get like some, I don't know, it's hard to say, I don't know who your favorite author is and what kind of advice they give, but sometimes there's some real gems in uh, just whether it's about publishing or whether it's something they like to do or the, the how they got the ideas for certain characters that it can be really, um, I don't know if I got next level stuff or just beyond like the basic stuff you're going to get in any craft book that you pick up. So definitely, I'm, you know, you know, I guess emulate them, but or just learn from your favorite authors, the people who are really doing what you want to be doing. And uh, Andrea's back, so I'll pass it back to her. Am I muted still? No, I'm not muted now. <laughs> I have no idea what happened. I like unmuted myself and the screen went like, I guess I hit the shortcut for exit meeting. <laughs> like, like, leave, this place is not good for me. <laughs> um, so I haven't done a whole lot of focus into craft just because I didn't, I haven't ever known where to go. I've, I've wanted to take craft classes. And if I were to do it, I would probably go through Dean Wesley Smith's classes. I know he's got a ton of really awesome courses that are um, available. And then I've all, I would also, I mean, I've, I've glanced through Stephen King's on writing. It, um, I don't remember anything from it. And then I definitely agree with Joe's suggestion on screenplays. I read the first like quarter of um, Save the Cats, a screenplay book, and it was very, very helpful. Um, so that's basically, I, I, I don't know. I, I've mainly just read, uh, read books and watched movies and paid attention to how I feel while watching those and reading those books. That's basically where I've gone for my craft um, help. And back to you, Lindsay. All right, we will move on to the next question, which is from Hannah. What kind of feedback loops did you use to gain confidence in your writing? Critique partner slash beta readers slash editor relationship. Did you, did you change it much from reader feedback? I'm letting my lack of confidence stop me before I've even started. And um, she was actually one of the folks to recommend also Brandon Sanderson's creative writing lectures on YouTube and his Writing Excuses podcast, as well as Fantasy Fiction Formula by Deborah Chester. Don't know that one, um, but she says the foreword is by Jim Butcher, as she was his teacher. Um, but Joe, take it off, or uh, how can you not let, or how can you keep lack of confidence from stopping you before you even start? All right. Uh, believe it or not, in my case, my lack of self-confidence actually helped me get over my lack of self-confidence because uh, my thinking when I w was finishing up the book and whether or not I should release it was, well, no one's going to read it anyway. So it's not like it matters if it's bad. <laughs> so like that was that was probably the like the second to last thought that pushed me over to actually releasing it. it was like, eh, ooh, who cares? No one will. No one will. No one will know. 
but in, in in my case, honestly, uh, I got a tremendous amount of support from from uh, my friends. I I was I would gonna say friends and family, but I kept my writing a secret from most of my family. So two of my friends in particular, Sean and Carrie, uh, also Chrissy, uh, are, are the people who were responsible for me moving forward. So I guess you would call that feedback from beta readers because they had read at least two of those people had actually read my stuff and felt like it was good enough to move forward. But generally speaking, uh, my certainty that I would not sell any copies was enough to make me feel comfortable releasing. That's really funny because I kept my writing a secret too. When I first started, I didn't start writing until I was in college and I was like, I don't want anyone to know. I don't want anyone to know. It was, I don't know. It was embarrassing for some reason. (laughs) It's not embarrassing anymore. (laughs) Um, so I don't know. Um, okay. So I would say there's something to be gained, um, something to be said about gaining confidence from those who know what they're talking about. So like my editor, I listen to my editor quite a bit. And when she tells me something's good, I listen. When she tells me something's not good, I listen. Um, and then positive reader feedback is really huge. Um, like those, not just reviews, but them, them, you know, posting on your Facebook group or emailing you or whatever that, that can give you quite a nice, um, bit of constant, a boost of confidence in the beginning. And even later on, cause everybody goes through phases where they're like, is this book crappy? You know? Um, and then I don't know, some authors turn to, re- to, um, like readers groups and th- writers groups, things like that. They, they can be really helpful for that. But I tend to put my readers opinions and my editors feedback ahead of other authors. Um, especially if those authors don't write in my genre or don't read my genre though. in the beginning, especially when you first start out pretty much, there's something to be learned from pretty much everybody. And even somebody who's not experienced in your genre can help you fine tune and gain confidence when you do something really well. So I already mentioned the writing workshop that I joined before, and that was really helpful for me. Um, That was really all I had access to. I didn't know anybody locally that was, writing sci-fi and fantasy and could start a group with me not to mention i would have been kind of horrified at the thought of in-person stuff as a uh, hardcore introvert and someone who wilts under the uh you know stern feedback given in person somehow it's a little easier to digest it uh the written word and you know there's no uh social (laughs) discomfort or less at least that's what i found but the critique groups i've kind of found like if you can please other authors um that's like the toughest group authors and editors are like the hardest to please you'll find that like if you got those people going yeah yeah the story is pretty good by the end then you'll probably find that normal people (laughs) meaning like readers uh, and not necessarily authors who are uh have been trained to uh, deliver critique as part of their uh, experience um, they're usually often easier not always but often easier to please so if you can get it past editors and other authors who are in the critiquing mode, then that's probably a good sign that it's ready to go. Um, Also, one thing I did, because this was the only way to go back then, this is a little bit before Kindle and all that, was submitting short stories. uh, And once I, I never did get the pro sale, you know, the the mighty vaunted five cents a word sale to some magazine that people had actually heard of 
But once I started, I sold some stories for anthologies and, you know, in a few smaller magazines. And that gave me the confidence to know, like, okay, at least my writing is good enough that uh, people are willing to give me a little money for it. So uh, I actually think that's, even in this day and age of being able to just go straight to self-publishing, I think that's not a bad idea, especially if you're kind of still working on your manuscript and stuff. But if you've got some short stories on the side, you know, try submitting them. Uh, if, if that appeals to you, you don't have to, but it is a bit of a litmus test. Like if you're able to start selling things to uh, editors, then you kind of know, well, at least every story may not be awesome, but at least my writing is at a level where people are <laughs> willing to pay for it and actually want to print it in their little magazine or their anthology. So that that's what did it for me. I'll pass it back to Andrea for the next question. Okay. Kat asks, what craft, craft recommendations do you have for a series? I know the plot needs to support multiple books, but what about the character goals, motivations, weaknesses, and strengths? Should those change every book or grow? Do people get bored if a character has the same things um, for too many books, for example? All right. Um, what I like to do is have separate character growth person. Uh, uh, I like to have a separate character growth personally and then as part of the group so in book one maybe your characters are working on themselves and they come together and they uh, in book two it's not just working on themselves but actually working on the group uh learning how to function with the other characters and then the interpersonal growth growth starts to happen and then relationships and romance becomes a focus uh, moving forward and then maybe rivalries and falling outs and you remove a character and suddenly the group has to has to learn how to work together without that character and you end up with a series of of unique pieces of growth uh that that you know you so you're not treading on old ground. What you really want to do is avoid treading on old ground. You don't want the same growth arc over and over again without a very good reason for it. I think the there's a the Robichaud novels. I forget the character's first name. He's a recovering alcoholic, and uh, it's a long series. And at least twice in the series, he you know relapses into alcoholism. Uh, I've only read two of the books, and they weren't in the same. And they weren't in order. And in both of them, he was actually forced into uh, a, a, a relapse, and that felt a little bit hokey, I suppose. So you want to avoid having somebody overcome the same obstacles over and over again. Again, unless they have a very good reason. Let's say the, uh, the problem is a person in a, is in a bad relationship. Let's say, let's say book one, they just got out of a bad relationship. And the arc is about them getting over that. And then book two, they get into a new relationship. And then book three, that relationship starts to show some of the same problems. Uh, you, can now, you have now basically the same arc again of somebody in a bad relationship, but maybe this time, because they've experienced the first one, they're looking at it differently and they're maybe seeing maybe if they should have forgiven the previous person or if maybe they're the, the, the source of their problem or maybe they weren't the source of the problem. So you can reintroduce an old arc over again, but it, it has to be warranted by the story and it has to be influenced by the previous arc. So I, for me, it depends on what kind of series that you're writing because uh, there's two, there's more than one different kind there's more than one series so i would say there's kind of like three series so you've got the series where the books can are standalones they can be read in any order and they're they're multiple characters they're not all the same main characters then you've got the ones where they're main they're basically the same characters but you can read them out of order they don't have to be necessarily read in order that's kind of like mercy thompson um and then you've got the series that have to be read in order or they don't make sense unless you're reading them in order and so it just it depends honestly like the characters the character growth that you'll see in a series where they're not going to be don't need to be read in order there will be a little bit of it of of, of an arc that goes through you know like 
I don't know. I can't think of any examples right now, but, um, so maybe the beginning of book one, will they get together? And it doesn't get resolved until book 10. And it's just very, very lightly there. And all of the main themes that are overarching are just very light. I don't know. It's like a TV show, like House. I've been watching House a lot lately. So like Vogler, I'm in season one right now. If those of you guys who are w- listening have, have watched House, Vogler is this guy who comes in and puts in $100 million towards the hospital and he's trying to get rid of House. Um, and that's like, it's a very small subplot that exists within this whole huge plot and house's character doesn't change very much. There's very, very, very few little things that happen to him throughout the whole series across all the episodes and across every season that shows a little bit of a change. And that's pretty much the same with all the characters. There's not big dramatic changes, but in a series where they have to be read in order and you like the kinds where you're, they're going to be like readers will be lost if they're not reading um, them in order. If they start with the later book, you're going to have a lot like a bigger, um, and more dramatic character arcs. And they're going to be a lot more noticeable because you can't, you can't, you actually can, um, I don't know, like you can delve into the more deep things because it doesn't matter if somebody like the readers will have been there through the whole thing. So they'll, they'll recognize it. Somebody who starts halfway through might be lost. Like, why is this person struggling with this topic? You know? Uh, and so that's, that's what I have to say about that. Um, um, goals, motivations, weaknesses, and strengths. I, I feel they should change every book or should grow. And you don't have to have always be a getting better, like having them get worse over time is fine too. Um, and yes, people do get bored if characters are doing the exact same things. And that's going to be like the exact same climaxes, the exact same battle scenes, exact same everything. People do get bored if everything's always the same. Right. This is going to depend, as Andrea said, somewhat on whether you're doing... I, the reason I like kind of the space opera epic fantasy where you have this big story arc from beginning to finish is it just seems a little easier to layer these things in over the course of the series. Your characters are going from, you know, just these whatever haphazardly collected band of heroes to like, okay, we can save the galaxy. And in that process, we, we realize that we are maybe much stronger people than we realize, or we have much more to give, uh, whatever they realize. And uh, again, same thing, if you have a romance or a character relationship, that can really give the sense that, that we're making forward progress. Um, as an example, my urban fantasy series was kind of intended, they're all standalone stories, but I definitely had arcs with the characters there's a there's a romance with the guy that starts out as the antagonist in the first one and then there's also a relationship with a daughter who's been living with the ex-husband a teenage daughter you know how great those are to uh, have a relationship with when you're a mom anyway so but it really starts with when they you know they're really antagonistic when they first meet and very gradually over the rest of the books you know they're not lovey-dovey by the end but you know there's something uh we enjoy seeing as a reader is the evolving of a relationship like that and the characters kind of uh you know maybe growing a little bit in the process but it, it is a little different tends to be a little different with series that are like uh, a standalone it's a you know like a pi story is a different uh epi- you know mystery to solve in, in each one you often see a lot of the examples out there there's not really much character growth but i think if you have the option to do it 
uh, give them something in the first book, even if you're thinking this is going to be 10 stories, 10 books, and there's going to be a different mystery, complete story in each one. They're going to stand around alone. So you don't want to have a whole backstory that you have to explain. Like you can still have those things progress. Like if you've seen uh, sitcoms or you know, series have been on for like eight years, I think I mentioned before that I was a big fan of Frasier. And <laughs> ironically, I don't think Frasier changes that much in the whole 11 seasons of that. But Niles and Daphne have this, the whole whole reason i was watching that was to see their relationship niles like breaks up finally realizes the the wife is not for him that he's been married to and uh, he tr loves daphne but it takes him like eight seasons that they finally figure it out and that kept me reading or watching as, as a viewer because I, I wanted to see it you know i wanted to see that change and you know it does like i said it doesn't have to always be romance and it does it can be just personal stuff too personal growth it doesn't have to be all character stuff but uh relationships with other characters changing can be some of the easier stuff to write. It can be a little bit um, forced or feel a little unnatural if you're having your character just sitting alone and thinking about <laughs> like going into depth. I'm changing as a person as a result of these things that have happened. Uh, so doing it, uh, relationships in between characters, however, uh, can be a great way to show that kind of growth in them. Kind of rambling a bit, so I'm going to move on. Let's just do one more question. We've been talking for about an hour, I think. I'll pass it to Joe to ask. All right. Our last question is from Dale, and it's a good one to go out on. Making mo making characters more engaging for the reader, what are your top tips? Uh, in my case, uh, there's some borderline gimmicky things I like to do, and I don't care if they're borderline gimmicky because I like to do them. Uh, if you give them a subtly or sometimes completely over-the-top distinctiveness to the way they talk, for example, this is better for a, a secondary character than for a main character, although you could do it with the main character. Uh, I've got a lot of side characters who have got uh, verbal tics or weird dialects, and, and it really, it, it immediately sort of adds flavor to them. Uh, in general, giving them a relatable quirk or a flaw is a very good way. And again, it shouldn't feel tacked on. It should feel organic from their history or from their personality. But just a little thing about them that makes them imperfect. It, it tends to connect to the reader because it turns out most readers are not perfect either. Uh, you should give them, and this is my favorite one, you should give them like a, hid a hidden depth that we see little flashes of now and then. Because the moment you see just a little element of their character that has not been revealed before and then it's quickly covered up or or you know glazed over or whatever uh immediately the reader is intrigued and they want to know like well why did he do that and and will he do it again they start watching for uh, the next time it might come along if you have a dim-witted character and i write a lot of dim-witted characters because they're fun uh and then you in a conversation they they are in remarkably philosophical on a certain topic or they manage to very concisely and insightfully uh, encapsulate the conversation all of a sudden it's like man i can't wait until the next time he gets a chance to do that so giving them little glimmers of what's underneath will really sort of get your your uh, your reader interested in the character uh if it it goes the other way too. You don't have to have like a, a sort of a, a dopey character show something that's not dopey. You can have a debonair character who's super dashing and everyone wants to be him or her. And then just a little, give a little piece of evidence that they're overcompensating for something. And suddenly you didn't even give them a flaw. You just reveal that there exists a flaw and people are going to be like, Oh, I can't wait to see what that turns into. Just, you just have to hint at things. And I think it automatically makes people more interested in the character. 
And I like the idea. I've never actually never written a dim-witted character. That would be kind of fun. <laughs> um, so I would say put them in a position that really sucks. Um, like something that, you know, readers would hate, you know, um, something that, that, um, I don't know, like my first uh, book in the Mosaic Chronicles, there's like an overabundance of spiders and you don't find out until later on that the, there's like this evil spirit who's controlling these spiders trying to get the main character's attention. And so there's thousands of spiders and that really, really has gotten the attention of, of readers. And they remember that series because of those spiders um, or my current series where he's happy and he's being black murdered into killing people. Um, but it could also be something as simple as, um, finding a new job, you know, a job that they absolutely, that, that like sucks, that they absolutely hate. Like they're tired of emptying outhouses, something like that. Just make them like, put them in a position that is, is awful. That, that, that strikes readers as, you know, relatable. So I think the big thing is that for a character to be engaging to the reader, you know, especially if this is your protagonist, it's we need to identify with them. So, I mean, great if they have a lot of personality and quirks. I love that stuff because it's a great starting off point to kind of make a character stand out and help you develop them as you're writing. But um, basically, if they, they need to have goals and motivations that we can understand and care about, like we can get, whether it's a well, okay, the character I mentioned, Val, who is a, you know, assassin, total badass. She's got the magic sword, the magic trinket. She's good at her job. She's got half-elven blood, so she's really hard to kill. And But then we see, you know, right away that she has this daughter that she wants to have a relationship with, and she feels the rejection when her daughter's like, no, I got, I came too busy this weekend. We can't uh, do our sword fighting lessons. And so we can all identify with that as a reader because we've all been rejected by somebody. We really want them to like us and care about us, and they're pushing us away. But at the same time, it is worth a relationship worth pursuing, and I think we've felt that. So... Uh, you know, another thing is to not be afraid to show the vulnerabilities of your heroes. Uh, even if, if you're doing the tough guy hero, which, you know, can be common in like fantasy and sci-fi or, you know, you've got your PI who's uh, really good at solving crimes, right? Just these little vulnerabilities, don't be afraid to show that stuff because it really helps humanize them and it makes us identify with them. And the part that they're badass at the same time is awesome because we love if also, you know, live vicariously through those characters. So I, I guess the thing to ask yourself if you're reading a character and they kind of, you know, that you're writing and it feels a little flat to you is just always ask yourself, why should the reader care about this person? And maybe it's that you need to go back and like add a motivation for them. Uh, Cause sometimes we forget to do that, especially with side characters. Like they're just on the crew, you know, they're along for the missions. They're always there supporting the good guy, but you know, why, what, what is the reason? And are they trying to accomplish anything else on the side? I had a character in a space opera series that he's, you know, he's just a security guard. He's along for the ride and, you know, he's getting paid. But at the same time, he happens to love barbecuing and he's creating his own sauce line and he has dreams of becoming like the next Emerald or some cooking person that makes sauces. <laughs> I don't know, Martha Stewart. Uh, that's probably not it either. Bobby Flay, he must have his own sauces. I'm sure he does. 
But things like that, motivations, dreams that we can identify with, because who does not want to have their own sauce line, you know? Um, things like that can help us identify with the characters that maybe otherwise you're just you're like, eh, the characters kind of throw away. They're just there to, like, move the story along. So vulnerabilities and then motivations and goals that they're working towards, uh, not just for the protagonists, ideally, and it's hard to remember all this stuff I know when you're writing, but <laughs> uh, for the side characters too. And you never know when some side character will become a hero of it on, in his own right and or her own right and get a spin-off series or something like that. All right. I think we're going to stop at that point. We didn't quite get to everything. We'll see if uh, maybe, I think we have a guest next week, but maybe we can answer a few more of these in the future. Um, I guess I'm done talking here on my hinky satellite internet with dogs clacking around in the background and the dog who's still wearing a cone was bashing her head earlier against the wall. So I'm sure the audio picked that up and it was great. Uh, thanks everyone. I'll hand it back to Joe to uh, sign off there. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're going to be revisiting this topic again because it turns out there's a lot to talk about when it comes to craft. So uh, thank you for listening and thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes and leave a comment or a question at Six Figure Authors with the number six. And uh, that's it for this week. See y'all later.